Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Coke and Conversation. Back with some whiskey and a great guest, uh, Chris Spangle from the We Are Libertarians podcast, wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. I've been a fan of your page and all the stuff you do on, online and, and your podcast for uh, a little bit. I, I moved out here to D.C. and I got fully in enthralled into the libertarian movement, the, the liberty movement. Um, I've always considered myself to be uh, more libertarian left-leaning, but I didn't really know that I was so libertarian until I started meeting people that were more like-minded like myself. Right. Uh, it's an interesting thing because I've, I've, I've learned that I piss off people on both the left and the right, and therefore I know that I'm probably doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I consider myself a radical centrist, and I am constantly being told that I'm Hitler or Mao or, uh, you know, left libertarian or uh, Mises, Nazi-loving, alt-right. Like, it just, it's it never ends. If you have an opinion in public, people see it as a Rorschach test. It's very odd. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've, I've gotten into it with so many family members about... Uh, whether it be how much government should be involved with anything. And, and it's like, you both sound the same, whether you're Democrat or Republican. It's kind of hilarious that I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to sound rational and you aren't listening to me because I'm not one of your L or R people. Yeah. It's the cult of the omnipotent state. People look at the government as a way to solve problems. That is the way that we will save our, us from each other, you know, and it just doesn't work. It's not the reality. In fact, it's, uh, what I try to do on We Are Libertarians is come from a place of empathy and try to understand everyone's point of view and then meet people where they're at and then give them the libertarian response to the problem that they're raising. Because there's usually a libertarian response, and that usually is we have to take care of each other and the markets will be the the process for doing that. And it will be done more efficiently, less violently than the way that the state does it or a government does it. And so uh, it's it's hard. And I think sometimes we focus on hating the government so much that we forget to talk about the what looks like what it looks like on the other side or what are the libertarian solutions. Or as I've said for years, we're a lot of change and not enough hope. Uh, and so. You know, that's a lot of what We Are Libertarians is, is let's talk about what your friends are talking about and give some context to it and then give you the libertarian response to it. Um, we're different in a lot of other shows where they're very philosophically heavy and we're more um, talking about what you and your friends are talking about and giving you facts and trying to inform you. So when you have those discussions with your friends, you sound really smart. No, I, I I've really appreciated that on 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 the page and on on the website. It's it's actually a refreshing take because I I see so many pages out there that are so theoretical heavy. It, it's just like obviously the theory of libertarianism is less government, and the fake theory of conservatism is less government. Yeah, <laughs> we've seen that not in practice. Um, what do you think? Like, I guess tell me about yourself. How do you become libertarian? How, how do you do you? consider yourself to be a card-carrying libertarian or do you think there's is there happy mediums that you like to you really enjoy having that more fleshed out nuance with when it comes to certain policies like what what framed you 
Well, I mean, I do host a podcast called We Are Libertarian, so I would say that I am, I mean, in my friend circle, I am Mr. Libertarian to them. I mean, maybe not to other libertarians, but that's how it goes, right? Um, right. You know, I, I consider myself, um, the, the world that I would want in my utopian vision is an ANCAP future, but I'll accept, I'll accept a constitutional republic. Um, and so, you know, I, I am obviously more classically liberal than a lot of the people that I interact with here in local politics or through my regular life. Uh, and I, I started out in talk radio in 2004 and I was always very interested in politics. I remember my family went and watched a movie and I stayed in the car listening to the radio as Clinton was on trial in the Senate in 98 or 99 and i was just always that like that's what really got me into politics was the clinton impeachment and then i turned 18 two days before 9 11 and you know when you signed up for selective service the day before 9 11 you it hits you harder and it hits you in a different way when 9 11 takes place uh, it was really formational for me, and I got very into politics. I was a Republican. I was college Republicans chair at IUPUI in 2004, and I always held more libertarian views because I was very into talk radio, and the sentiment, you know, people always kind of debate is libertarianism right or left, although there are many leftists like Bakunin or Goldman who had significant developments towards libertarian thought. The, the right has always done more to nurture um, libertarian thought. And so if you read National Review or if you, you know, going back to Mencken, if you read um, Republican sites or listen to Neil Bortz say, I'm a libertarian, like you, you were exposed to it a little bit more, I think, if you were Republican. And I really started to agree with a lot of those free market solutions and a lot of the... Um, uh, more economic stuff, but I never was really on board with immigration in 2004. I almost got impeached as college Republicans chair for saying I agreed with Bush's immigration plan to allow people to come here and work. Uh, but right. I, I agreed. I didn't think gay marriage was a big deal. Uh, and I started to, I volunteered in 04 for a campaign for a guy named Andy Horning. At the same time, I went to work at a radio station with a guy named Abdul. Both of them are very libertarian and very good at challenging my little talk radio Limbaugh talking points. And I got so frustrated because I didn't have answers. And this is the thing that I found throughout my life is I get pissed because I have no good way to articulate. It's like toddlers. The reason they're always upset is they have no language to express their thoughts and feelings and desires. And that's why they're always mad. So you do the baby sign language and then <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, and so... I started uh, searching, and and uh, the last piece for me was the foreign policy aspect. And so when Ron Paul was on the debate stage talking about foreign policy and reading up on a lot, and a lot of his campaign in 08 focused around foreign policy, uh, that was the kind of final piece for me th th that fell. And I became a libertarian, working at the talk radio station, looking at the libertarian party going, why aren't they functional? And the state party said, because we don't have an executive director. And then so I went and worked there for four years, which was an amazing experience, helping start campaigns, learning a ton. But I was still fairly new. Like when they hired me, if they had known that I was for gun control and didn't, I'd never seen a gun, you know, like they probably wouldn't have hired me. But 
you know, over the course of the years interacting with people, having conversations, I became more and more. I mean, I remember Mary Rohr is a famous libertarian who wrote a great book called Healing Our World. And her saying to me in, a, in 2009, like, you're just new on the train. But when you're like five miles down the train, you'll be where I'm at. And that's kind of where I am now, you know. And so what, what I've tried to do when I became a baby libertarian, I was really... I'm highly persuadable and easy. Manip- I'm very gullible. I'm a very trusting person. And so I, I, f- I got fooled by a lot of like the more doom and gloom libertarians during the crisis in 08. And I, I, I never have forgotten that. And so in 2012, I started We Are Libertarians as a way to give an access point to people who are, who are, Curious in the philosophy, but don't want to be scared away by it, by angry talk. Our, our logo is intentionally blue and not black and yellow. Uh, okay. We try not to have an angry stance. We do try to challenge people, and we do try to push on those orthodox beliefs that come from the Democrats and Republicans. But we understand that it doesn't take – you cannot change an entire person's belief system overnight – um, we're about to launch a new podcast and the website's actually up. It's called libertyexplained.com. And that is going to be the go-to resource for you to recommend to your friends uh, when they want to know what libertarianism is. It's going to be a multimedia website with a ton of resources that are carefully curated to not be terribly scary for the person that doesn't understand that you should be able to have your own tank and or recreational nukes. Like, you know, I, I believe that now, but that would have scared the hell out of me in 2008. So um, that's really the focus of my career now is trying to, trying to talk to new libertarians and get them to think about their worldview in a way that is, is more gentle than I think a lot of the, the movement has done in the past. And in a way that's not professorial, there's a lot of great professors but it's like office space. There needs to be somebody in the middle that can talk to the engineers and can talk to the people. So that's, that's, you know, that's, that's me. <laughs> well, that, that's awesome. And I, I've always, I've always thought of libertarianism as that, like, you know, no skin off my back. If it doesn't affect me personally, then it shouldn't matter to me as far as like what you do with yourself and your own life. Um, but at the same time being uh, fiscally responsible and, and, I, I want to use it hesitantly, but conservative. Um, and it, it's funny that because socially liberal, fiscally conservative isn't necessarily what libertarianism is defined as, but I've always defined myself as that. Right. And it's interesting when I have conversations with people who don't even know what libertarianism is. And obviously we face an uphill battle for not only the party, but the idea. idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea to me is just so commonsensical. Just individual liberty. So what do you think, I mean, obviously you have the, you have the podcast and, and I think you're doing great work and this, this new, new podcast sounds like it's going to be great, but what, what do you think the biggest uphill battle is? Is it the electoral system and how we get, it, we get people actually into Congress, into the presidency, or is it more so a grassroots movement that is just waiting to bubble over into that? Well, there's several different answers there. I mean, there's the, there's the structural changes within the law that have to take place and there's also the persuasion that needs to take place in the population. Um, from a structural side, the number one enemy to the growth of libertarianism is the party structure itself and their control over ballot access laws. 
you want to get third party people elected or if you want to even maintain libertarians like Justin Amash and Thomas Massey, you have to fix gerrymandering. You have to fix ballot access. You have to fix the electoral law because Thomas Massey and Justin Amash cannot change the Republican Party from the inside because of the people that get selected in primaries in the other 430 some seats 35 i think it is 37 well if you're taking a mosh it's 33 um so though though that's the biggest structural change that needs to take place like there there can be no change until we have true representation of the american populace in congress and right now we have let the political parties choose how the country is represented and so a third of the country just doesn't vote because they don't see their ideas represented and there's a couple reasons for this so you know when we look at when we think of tammany hall and the the big machines and mr smith goes to washington and that era of politics you had the parties selecting the candidates and you had the legislatures selecting the senators you had you know, the the founders had a big blind spot in terms of factionalism and parties. They knew it would exist, but they didn't expect two parties to spring up so quickly. <laughs> um, and that that really set the template for the two party state that we have found ourselves in. But the intent of the system was really to have multiple factions represented within Congress, have a weak president and have a weak judicial and have a Congress. Congress, for instance, has the power to tax. Congress has the power to declare war. The president does not have either of those, although because of the cult of the presidency, as Glenn Healy so brilliantly wrote about, you start to see the presidency grow into what the founders originally feared. And so we saw parties were too powerful because they were they were corrupt. So we need to fix this. Well, the fix ended up with congressmen dialing for dollars more than the legislating congressmen on c-span trying to look a certain way to appeal to the primary voters you you have anemic weak parties that have no real control over the more demagogic aspects of their wings of their parties and then you have third parties that are totally cannibalized because the other two parties wrote the laws and so that is if you, the the path forward is increasing intellectual diversity. There's a reason that the suburbs have less ostentatious displays of political, like you see these big giant Trump signs and displays in rural America, or you see ostentatious displays in urban America for the left and the right. But you don't see a lot of that in the suburbs because that's the last place where these ideological groups interact with each other. And, we keep each other in check when we have intellectual diversity. And so we have to force as a people, our representatives to start changing ballot access laws. But that first requires the people to be a check on the government. Everybody's worried about their vote right now. We're worried about what are they going to do to protect our vote instead of going, this is my vote and I need to call my local clerk to make sure it got counted. We, we are losing the idea of personal responsibility and the fact that we are ultimately in control. That's a lot of what the Black Lives Matter conversation is. We, like, do we really think that in Chicago, black leaders aren't worried about black-on-black violence? That's just stupid. They can't fix it because they're in a minority in, uh, across the nation. The majority 
of white America keeps voting in drug laws that make all of this work or the crime bill and the left and the right, uh, the Democrats and Republicans are, are contributing to it for it to be changed. The majority of America has to stand up to fix this stuff. And it is possible. Like if you are cynical about the prospects of liberty, government just killed government schooling in the past six months. Like right. we will never return to the hegemony of the 19th century model of schooling. We are going to a new future and libertarians are going to lead that way, just like they're leading on criminal justice reform, just like they're leading on the discussion about how in the pandemic, the government isn't the solution. They can't save us. They can only make things worse. This is the best year to be a libertarian ever. And so um, we need to step up and we need to work together to really fix a lot of this stuff. And I think so. Uh, the, the answer is twofold. The first is that people need to realize their power. And the second is they need to take their power back by fixing election law. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And I, the pandemic is a good example because a lot of certificate of need laws and in, in, in the medical industry have prevented us to have the adequate response to COVID-19 that we could have. The, the private industry was strangled by the FDA and numerous other agencies and numerous regulations that didn't allow us to respond quickly. And we're seeing that the government can't help us. But moreover, I, I, my biggest point for all of this has always been that, that local elections culturally have lost their importance. And the framers meant for the federal government to not matter for our every day-to-day -day lives. And for whatever reason, we've culturally gotten to this point where you know we're electing people that are, uh, well, currently reality TV stars. And I mean, even Obama, to an extent, he was a nice... Or orator, he was very. He, he looked like the president. He he had that presidential factor, and it was he was just a popular person. He was likable, and we're electing people based on that. And we get all up in arms every four years on how we elect someone because we like them rather than their actual merits or what they're actually going to do. So I, I wonder, is there a way for us to get away from that at the national level and focus more on maybe libertarian, or I want to say libertarian leaning left or right people in local elections to help spur that from from the bottom up. I just don't know if there's a way for us to, like if we were to get Joe Jorgensen and, and Spike Cohen in, in 2020, uh, miraculously, I mean, I know it's an uphill battle and I, I, I mean, I, I do hope that for the best, but we have two terrible choices right now. What is the country going to respond to if we'd have neither of them and we get someone so unique in that they've never even heard of them and it's like, oh, wow, this is massive change. Is that massive change good? Or is that massive change too much of a shock to the system that needs to be changed in a more cultural way before we do legislatively? Yeah, so I think of this in, in a different way than probably most people in that we look at what you what you outlined was a top-down change, right? So mm -hmm. we get Joe Jorgensen or Gary Johnson in there, and from the top-down, we can change it if we get the pre right president in and they can fix it. Unfortunately, the federal government and even your local government suffers from Hayek's knowledge problem. There is not one person that can effectively change the system, know everything that they need to know to centrally plan the system. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's an impossibility. The Libertarian Party presidential candidate is a marketing person. They are the person that goes out and they are the one for four years. They have functionally represent libertarian ideas to your friends and family because if you've been a libertarian as long as i have they're the only it's the only time your friends and family will actually ask you about what do you think of this joe jorgensen they'll, they'll pay attention because right. most people have been 
in, they have been indoctrinated into the mindset that they need somebody else to make the decisions for them. They have been they through public schooling or just society in general through the culture you're talking about. It is the idea that I shouldn't have to do this. Somebody else needs to figure it out for me. Now, part of that growth in that that lack of personal responsibility and mindset is social media in that we are awash in all the things that we think we are supposed to understand. Um, but when I was watching, there's a great movie called Big Fish. And at the end of the movie, the the he you see a scene, I won't give away the ending, where all the characters from the movie are showing up at the end of the movie. And I thought, you know what? We sit here and worry about what is happening in Portland and the statues in Richmond. And I've never been to Richmond and I don't want to go to Portland. I don't functionally really care. And none of that really affects me, but it's making me really angry. And I feel like I have to take a side. Like our social media has turned us into little PR agents where we have to issue a statement about everything that's happening. And you have to look right and you have to get the answers right. And so I've got to know all this stuff. And it's like, you don't, you don't have to comment on any of this stuff. It doesn't matter. What matters is the hundred people that you come into contact with daily and if you start taking actions that are more libertarian, more peaceful, more cooperative, more empowering in your own life, then that inspires other people to start doing the same, and then it spreads. And eventually we get to a culture where nobody is asking who the president is because they're so irrelevant to our lives. It's that we have made these people too relevant in our lives because we aren't taking responsibility for educating our children. We aren't taking responsibility for how we interact with people of other cultures. We aren't taking responsibility for our own security. We aren't, we have, so, so when you look to the state to solve problems, you inherently divide people and pit people against each other, and then we can't figure out why we're not all getting along. Well, everybody's trying to wrestle for the gun of the state to make the other guy submit, and you fall into a, a, a domestic pure power politics. You know, power politics in international relations is where one nation exploits another in an effort to maintain economic supremacy. And that's sort of what we're doing now is we're trying to wrestle for the presidency because the left needs to dominate the right or the right needs to dominate the left. And the rest of us in the middle, the 80% that aren't trying to fight for that gun are going, you're making me miserable, leave me alone. And so the antidote to that is taking responsibility for our own lives and our own communities and not looking to these people to solve the problems, not looking at the government to, to provide good schooling are my kids going back? Are they not going back? These people can't make up their mind. This teacher's not. No, homeschool your kids. Look, go look into homeschooling. Do it yourself. You will find a greater, you, your life will be so much more flexible. You can go travel while you're educating your kids because you're working from home and they're being schooled at home. And all of a sudden you're both in a beach for a month. And then you go, why did we ever attach ourselves to these institutions that no longer work for us? And so through that conversation, through that empowerment, through having to work with the people we come into contact with, you build new institutions that are much smaller and more manageable and start throwing off the institutions that aren't working like public schooling. And so we, we are... 
I, I firmly believe that 100 years from now, we will look back and go, how did those barbarians attach themselves? They weren't mobile. I mean, the, the right for, to travel is just a human right. And these people were stuck in the same place all of the time. Well, oh, how barbaric <laughs> were that? You know, and so I, I, I'm more optimistic about the future of liberty than ever before, because I think people are starting to figure out no one is coming to save them and you have to save yourself. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, education is a big passion of mine. I actually got my master's in education policy back in Milwaukee uh, three years ago, two years ago now. Um, and I've always thought that the, the bedrock of a successful society is an educated public and not educated in the way that, you know, indoctrinated government schooling, but um, and this militant style, you know, desks in a row with a blackboard at the front. It's such an archaic way to teach children. And but to be honest, it does work for some kids, but a lot of kids fall through the cracks. And my biggest thing that I've always been interested in is character education and building better people rather than just worker bees for the system. How do we have a more responsible, critically thinking populace? Well, it starts with when you're a young kid, you have to be able to have that critical thinking ingrained into you. And how do you do that? Well, I mean, teachers could help, but you spend most of your time with your teachers. You don't have that much interaction with your actual parents and family. Your parents and family genetically have more ability to, you know, shape you as a person and be a better human being at your young, you know, sponge brain age. And when we throw kids into a classroom full of 30 kids and, and just read from a textbook for eight hours a day, you're siphoning off all that critical creative thinking. And okay, you can do algebra, which I would argue is, is somewhat important. But at the same time, you're, you're not you're not addressing the actual things that build a society. You're just creating worker bees. And I, I think that's such a problem. And, and I, you're right, homeschooling and uh, different types of voucher schools and out online virtual schools have shown that they can do it better. And the data is coming out and it's very surprising. I shouldn't say surprising, but very enlightening right now that, I mean, we have to take responsibility for ourselves and government can't do it for us. And th th you're right. This year is the year that we are all understanding that there is not an answer within both parties. Yeah, I, I learned helplessness starts in schooling. I, and oh, yeah. uh, the, the key to what you're talking about is incentives and consequences. And we, we start early trying to diminish consequences for people and incentivizing enablement and in so many different areas. And as people become less incentivized to act a certain way and more, there's less consequences for their actions – on every level of our society because you don't need to save money. We'll send you $1,200. You don't need to have a backup plan. If there's a pandemic, we'll send you PPP. If you know, the moral hazard of 2008 was if we bail these banks out, then who else, where does it stop? And now, now we need a bailout for schools. We need a bailout for strip clubs. We need a bailout for lobbyists. We need a bailout you know, the, the tap is open and what you end up with at the end of the day is Japan. So I'm not a doom and gloom hyperinflationist. Uh, it is in the realm of possibility, but the reality is that, you know, our currency is printed at somewhere around 12% of our GDP, which is an enormous GDP versus Japan, which is printed like 40%. Well, right. But Japan, because of their lack of innovation, because of the rising prices, because of the inflation that's taken place there, 
that stagflation, you have two lost generations of kids. And so you, you, if you're 18 right now or 22 and you're looking for a job, you're, you know, I, I have a family member that is 22 and is looking for housing and a job, doesn't want to live at home, trying to be self-sufficient, can't find a job. No apartment will take you unless you have three times earnings. You know, there's, what does that person do? So you end up in your car. <laughs> You end up literally homeless. And we then we go, why are all these homeless around here? Well, it's because we continually choose to have less consequences and kick the can down the road and incentivize the behaviors that we rail against in our words, but then vote for. You know, we can't figure out why Black Lives Matter exists and why are people upset? Oh, I don't know. It's because you kept voting in politicians like Joe Biden and Donald Trump that continued to punish communities of color. And then you can't figure out why they're upset. Like, and so why why is the Confederate flag controversial? It's because two generations ago, it became the symbol of segregation. The consequences of that are now it's seen as a racist symbol. Accept those consequences. And, and you, there's not really anything you can do to change it. The choice was made before you. Make better choices moving forward. And so we, we try to find outs in so many different areas of our society today to avoid good incentives and bad consequences when we really need a dose of all of it. And it's, you know, it, that's really what you're talking about is setting up from the beginning – a system of learning that challenges people. I'm yeah. fat, but I be, used to be really fat. I was like 330 fat. And like, I have to go into the gym and do things I don't want to do and push my body and, and use resistance from weights to build new muscles. And that is such a telling, uh, you know, analogy for Every other area, you have to push and build muscles and saving money and educating your kids. And, you know, kids are smarter when you don't put them on a tablet all day. You take all the screens away and force them to entertain themselves. And then all of a sudden, they're climbing up and doing other things two months earlier than the kids that are on the tablets. You know, and that's because of resistance. You're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. And, you know, I... I just I worry about the future because we are constantly enabling each other to act poorly and then getting angry at everyone for acting poorly. Yeah, I, I you touch on that, you know, using resistance and pushing back and part of the human condition is to learn through instinct like we we want to survive. So we're going to learn if we have to, if we're forced to without having a smartphone or a tablet in front of us. And not to mention all the distraction and the, the, I mean, the cognitive loss when you were just staring at a screen all day. But there was an Indian uh, educator, and I, I forget his name. Uh, he did a TED Talk about five or six years ago, and he was talking about how he did this experiment. He, was, he worked as a, as a tech guy in India. And the way India is, it's, it's very, I mean, uh, black and white when it comes to just like the rich and the poor. And you can look out your window of your giant corporate building and see kids with no shoes playing soccer in the dirt road uh, who have no money. And what he, the experiment that he ran uh, was he put a computer outside on the window and didn't tell them anything about how to use the computer. And, and he put a keyboard out and a mouse and just turned it on. Well, the kids started playing with it and they were very curious. They were trying to figure out what this was. And then someone told him that it was a flawed experiment because someone could have walked by and showed them in, in the interim. 
So he's like, that's that's fair. So he went to the rural parts of India, brought a generator, brought a computer, uh, took some volunteers uh, of young kids with parents and a, uh, someone who was there to supervise and whatnot uh, over the course of, of a few months. And he loaded a computer up with like eighth grade chemistry. It didn't uh, teach them how to turn it on, didn't teach them how to use a mouse or a keyboard. And I think ages ranged from like seven to 12. And here you go. And then he would test them every 30 days until what uh, knowledge they had of chemistry. And of course, the first test was like a 30%. But if you think about it, obviously in, in Western culture, 30% is failing. However, it's 30% more than they had before. Right. So, so it's, it's still a successful metric. Well, then he came back 30 days later and they got up to 50%. Then he got, they got up to 75%. And not only did they learn the, the material that was on the computer, they learned how to turn the computer on, how to browse the computer, how to how to save files, how to uh, use Microsoft Word, all these different things. And it was an interesting like display of how we could reshape our education in a more of a facilitatory, using that human instinct of learning rather than forcing, you know, memorization or you know vocab flashcards or whatever that that don't that don't really work except for regurgitation onto a test. Sure. And, you know, I mean, the ACT, I think, is a crap metric. I think it's ridiculous that we have that as a measure for going to college. But I, I would also argue that a lot of colleges is worthless. It's just, I, like we took what's called ISTEP, you know, the, the standardized testing once a year here in Indiana. And now, you know, when I talk to my teacher friends, thanks to No Child Left Behind and the further centralization of control of education in D.C. because of the, the need for federal funding because of diminishing tax bases, you have more and more and more testing. And so if you're a teacher, you're just teaching to a test. There is no creativity in your job. There is no, there is no Montessori type creativity if you're working in a public school. And when you have people bored at their job, you get boring consequences. You get a boring product. And kids have more entertainment than ever before. And so anything that's entertaining, it, it, you know, it's People don't have the same love of learning, and I'm sure this is an old man statement, but you know, when I was a kid, I used to go to the library and I loved just, I was the kid that had the stack of books under my chin as I walked out, and, and uh, you know, when I go to the library now, there, there were like, you know, one of those little like wooden things with the metal rails where you put the blocks and you went through the little whiny roller coaster. Like that was the extent yeah. of the toys for the little kids because mom wanted to go check a book at the library I grew up at. You know, when you walk into the central library in Indy, it's like a multimedia experience and there's some books there. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and I get that you have to learn, people learn different ways. You know, it's, you have readers, you have watchers and you have, you know, listeners, you have people who just learn visually by staring at memes all day. But <laughs> what I have found is that the most successful people in my community, as I talk to them, they're all readers. They read voraciously. The most successful people in, the, in any industry are the people who read constantly, are constantly trying to expand their horizons. And you only read what you're interested in, you know? And so I hated math. I wasn't interested in it. And, Nobody cared. It was just like, this is what you're getting. You know, where yeah. I love the idea of unschooling or some of these other new plans that take what a kid is naturally interested or gifted in and helps exploit that. And teachers have a sense that they get to participate in that passion and that energy as opposed to falling asleep at the desk because you're trying to take a test. But again, 
we blame teachers, we blame teachers unions, but it's really the politicians that are trying to take more and more control, largely at the behest of the unions, because again, all of this comes down to economic incentive. There's an economic incentive for for teachers unions to keep the existing model. They're going to fight tooth and nail to keep that existing model because they want to stay employed. You know, there's uh, th- that's the real problem is that the economics of this are about to change for teachers unions and that politicians are openly calling for defunding the schools and having the money follow the kids. Milton Friedman is finally about to win. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting thought too, because it, 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 that more than just a, an economic argument, it's, it's kind of a, a cultural shift that I don't think a lot of people who are ingrained with public schools are ready to take. And I wonder, and that's, that goes for a lot of things. Uh, you know, how do you argue the money aspect better. I mean, I, obviously, I, 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 so I, here, I, this, this would be a good example. My, I used to work at a pretrial agency in Milwaukee County. Uh, it was a nonprofit pretrial agency uh, called Justice Point, and we were contracted by Milwaukee County to basically supervise people who were uh, brought into jail and charged with a crime. And throughout their court proceedings, they would have a supervision level based on their risk factors or if they had previous violent crimes or whatever, if they were habitual or not, if they were a drug user. And we were tasked with making sure they had the resources that they needed. We would uh, coordinate with other nonprofit community services in Milwaukee County Um and then also, you know, breathalyze and, and, and drug test and report to the court to make sure like, oh, yeah, they made it all to all their, their appointments. They're, you know, they're doing good work. Um, so we'd be an advocate for them as well. But that was a nonprofit that the, the county had no real hands on except for just having a supervision report. We did such a better job at helping, quote unquote, criminals that, you know, the society has labeled broadband uh, with that word where we can actually help them get better and make sure recidivism drops. In 2017 through 2018, uh, we reduced recidivism by 25% in Milwaukee County. Like The data proved that we were doing a better job, but the problem is the politicians can't take helping criminals as a sexy slogan. Right. You know, So how do we take that and maybe take the emotional human aspect out of it, like myself as a case manager who did work with hundreds of, of, of people who needed help and sell it as saving taxpayer dollars and saving, you know, you're, you're saving money for the, for society. Oh, and by the way, a good benefit is that there's less crime. Yeah. So like that with education too, is how do you approach the teachers and the teachers unions and the people who are supporters of of those things, which I would argue our culture for, for teachers and the support for them should change. Like they should be hailed more than they are, especially good teachers, good teachers who do good work need to be not having to buy their own utensils and, and supplies and whatnot. And that, but I mean, who knows if, if the private industry can help pay them more or if it's just a cultural thing. I, I don't know what the answer is there, especially if there's a transitionary period. We can't just rip the rug out from underneath because there needs to be some kind of, I don't know if there's a, the, the correct way to do it. It's generational suffering just to have the what we want next, you know, tomorrow. Because I think you're right. Milton Friedman's idea is the, the, the goal. But how do we get there without having too much of a a shock factor to the system? Well, I think uh, I think um, you know I've been thinking a lot about. There's a book called Trust by Francis Fukuyama who talks about you know low trust, high trust societies, and we've become a very low trust society, and that's part of why everything feels so bad. And and we 
we tend to look down on others to make ourselves feel better. And so we look at people online and in the newspaper, Facebook post comment section and go, those people can't possibly educate their children without realizing those are probably the people educating your children and you have no control over it because you've given up control. They have a say in how your children are educated as opposed to taking care of your own and kind of walking away and, and, they're that way because you haven't pushed them because they don't have to be pushed because the government is like, uh, uh, it goes back to the incentives conversation. There, there's a couple points in here, you know, like the, the computer thing, human beings are very innovative and very curious. And it's why we're on top of the food chain. We are, are a very, um, we find something that will enrich our lives and then we optimize it. And it will always be that way. I don't, I don't buy the whole let's be terrified of Antifa thing. I think it's a red scare essentially to keep Trump in office. And the the reality is that as people get a, a glimpse of cancel culture, more and more people are reacting against it because it goes yeah. against their personal interests. People will always put their personal interest first. And that singular quality means that there will always be more innovation. There will always be an expansion of wealth. There will always be um, a, an ever-growing sense of empathy in society. When you look at us versus 100 years ago, we're a more empathetic society. Crime is going down. People are less hungry. People, you know, We've halved global poverty since 1990. The world is great you know, Greg Easterbrook writes about this in the Progress Paradox. As things get better, people tend to think it's worse. And that's because we have people at the top telling us it's worse. And we believe them. And that's on us because humans are highly persuadable. And they will often go against their natural interests because they're being propagandized by the person at the top of the food chain of the social proof structure. And so as more and more people start to check out of that system and go, I'm not with you. I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to do this thing. They're going to innovate, innovate, innovate. And they're going to optimize and make the world more freer, more empathetic. And the world will be better. There will be less poverty because we are, we are empathetic creatures. When we see one of our own in trouble, we don't sit there and think, is this a Republican? I'm a Democrat. I can't help them. We go, oh my God, that's horrible. What a tragedy. Or how can I help fund your GoFundMe? You know, we tend to think, I, I, we have to start designing. So it goes back to Thomas Sowell, who kind of articulated the two visions in Conflict of Visions. There's the constrained and the unconstrained view of humanity and how to, how to deal with it and the structures that we design. The, the progressive looks at it and says, if we can have a top-down structure that can define what it means to be human, we can perfect people, we can build programs that fix all these problems. And then there's the people who are more bottom-up like myself that go, there's an unconstrained view of humanity that, you know, people are, or maybe I have this backwards, but that, that people are people, human nature is human nature, they are how they are, and you have to build systems around that because you cannot fundamentally change those core principles. And so I look at all of this bottom up. Yes, there are some Marxists in Black Lives Matter, but most people don't think of, of critical race theory when they're thinking about Black Lives Matter. They're thinking empathetically that they want their black friends to not 
be hassled and have the boot on their neck the same way that they don't. People, um, people in the Tea Party, there are Christian dominionists who want to use the state to force everyone to be Christian, but that's not what it meant to most people. It was a bottom-up grassroots thing that we want more. We want more economic freedom. All of these grassroots bottom-up movements start changing the culture because it catches on because one person innovates, stands up, starts telling everybody, takes the slings and arrows of being called an idiot, the Galileos. And then all of a sudden everybody goes, that person's kind of right. I'm going to do that, you know? And, and then it just naturally changes there. There are some times in a society where you have the Thucydides trap as one great power wanes and another rises, you have conflict. That's sort of what's happening in the culture wars right now. As we move from a predominantly white hegemonic society towards a more multicultural society in terms of media representation and economic access, there are some people who want to fight that tooth and nail to preserve their economic hierarchy. The teachers' unions, another instance of that. But in the internet age, empathy and progress and uh, ways to enrich ourselves and ways to make our lives better, that moves so much quicker and progress happens so much faster and change happens so quickly now that the people who are fighting to control and the people that are fighting to, like... It, it just doesn't work. It, it, it cannot last. And so when you talk about a, a transition period, that's a 20th century way of thinking in that you have to reform these institutions. It takes so much longer. But you, you look at media, media, the New York Times is exposed for what it is. It has dwindling readers and people are choosing to listen to people like you and I. Mm-hmm. And there is no gatekeeper. I mean, there, there are media gatekeepers, but there are no walls. So it doesn't really matter if the New York Times doesn't like that Ben Shapiro exists or Joe Rogan exists because they can't do anything about it. And they can complain about it. You know, it's like the, 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 the MAGA crowd, Jack Prosobic, the other day, um, w- without any irony at all, posts on Twitter that Twitter and Facebook are a monopoly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on Parler or Parlay, however you pronounce it. And I go and I go, I wonder if he put that there. And he sure did without a sense <laughs> of irony that the man is calling them a m- monopoly while posting on another social network that is up and coming, you know, like without ever thinking that MySpace can the creative destruction is so much faster now. And, and there are people like Jack Persobic that want to use the state to control free speech and he's no different than the cancel culture people he's fighting against. Instead of going, I'm going to use my influence to grow minds.com or parlay or one of these other or think spot, you know, and they, they just never like see the irony in, in all that. So I'm not worried about, um, yes, there will be joblessness, right? Like we're in the middle of a, a sudden transition where, you have restaurant workers and event workers losing their jobs, but I work in radio, which is not known as a growth industry. And all my friends that I have seen lose their jobs in radio within one to two years have a new job and it's because they have to eat. And so we have a panic over the, the horse and buggy industry because of the, the horseless carriage, but eventually that, that creation moves into something better and something faster. And that employs more people. Is it sad that borders bookstore no longer exists? Yes. But I love Amazon, 
I love my Kendall, you know, so it's a trade-off. And so we deal with trade-offs all the time and we shouldn't be so anxious about it. So fearful about it. And we let mm -hmm. ourselves be fearful because politicians are trying to maintain control. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, and, and that, that's, that's one thing too, that, you know, our, the medium that you and I are using now, you obviously are, are doing it a lot, a lot longer than I am. And I, I'm, I'm new to this game. Um, so that's why I appreciate having you on. It's, it's, it's fun to, it's fun to hear your story and, and where, and where you've come from. But this, this space that we're capitalizing on that exists, is this the new mes uh, new news media forum? Like is the 24 hour news cycle dying as quickly as it should? Or it, will CNN, MSNBC, Fox, will they stick around and try as hard as they can? Or are they going to shift to this type of format? Because, I mean, surprisingly, back when Joe Rogan first started doing a podcast that, with people that, I don't want to say mattered, but had a more vociferous angle on things, you know, his whole thing is he doesn't know anything and he's, he's learning about something. You have Jordan Peterson on or Bert Weinstein on, you have him on for four hours like you would never think people would watch or listen to that podcast. And, but now we're trying to put on debate stages or segments for 30 seconds or 60 seconds to have a politician who we're electing, who actually will make change, uh, try to make a point, you know, is, is podcasting or radio format. It's funny that radio format kind of make, comes full circle. Mm -hmm. Is that going to take over in the next, I mean, couple of years, do you think? Yes to all of it. I mean, and so, you know, like I'm a, tri I'm a AAA member, right? Like AAA had a much more powerful grip on insurance and more, you know, like they had trip ticks and traveling guides, you know, when America's fell in love with traveling, they'd get, they'd go to AAA and get the books. And, you know, now AAA is more known as a roadside service. They had to pivot. Um, you know, I, I work with one vendor that does video streaming and they're about to pivot to something else. You know, there's, there's constant pivoting in, in market services. Right. And so you're always going to have the post or the New York times because of Bezos or Carlos Slim is always going to see those as valuable assets, not just to the community, but also to their business interests. Um, you know, Bezos by all accounts is fairly hands off at the times, um, but it's not lost on people that uh, there's a boss that runs Amazon and they probably do think twice about how they publish things. But there, that's true for me. You know, with We Are Libertarians, the reason I've put 20 hours a week into building this is that I don't want to have to answer to somebody. But I still have patrons and I still have an audience and there's still limits, right? Like there's still a freedom of speech. But I've been able to work on what I've wanted to work on, grow in the way that I've wanted to grow, try things, fail, succeed with the help of those people that I have direct contact with that are my friends. You know, I was talking about the growth of a new beard with one of my patrons yesterday, you know, getting beard advice from me, which to my 25 year old self would have been totally uh, wild because I didn't grow facial hair till 32. Um, <laughs> you know, but like it, it's a more personal medium in podcasting. And as the world, so what the internet has partly done is it's made things more hegemonic. And so, you know, there's less regional dialect, there's less regional character. Uh, you know, the, the accent that my grand, great grandmother had in Southern Indiana was unlike any accent anywhere else in the entire world. Everybody down there now talks like me in broadcast English. Um, culturally things become more hegemonic, um, as black culture is adopted and 
frankly stolen by other cultures you know that has that has been helpful that hege- mm-hmm. that hegemony because it's brought black people into it makes it makes our generation more comfortable with black culture because we love we grew up listening to Jay-Z or like so there there are, there are good things and bad things about that right um but in terms of media I think it's a lot like everything else. Like there's this weird post-World War II time period that is unlike any other in history uh, in that there was one world power. The, every other world power was not developed and completely bankrupted from the wars. And so the Americans had total domination for about 50 years. And there was one type of news. You know, when Walter Cronkite ended his newscast with that's the way it was, that's the way it was for everybody. <laughs> and it didn't matter if black Americans had a completely different experience than what they just saw in the nightly news. That's the way it was. And you just have to deal with it. Well, now right. we're in a space and time where uh, these major media companies are trying to catch up and hiring people like me to, to go, Hey, I need to figure out this internet thing. I need to figure out how to reach a broad audience. And so, yeah, these bigger companies like the New York Times do have the resources to put themselves on multiple different platforms and do podcasts in addition to news reporting, and they should. But they're one of the crowd, not the crowd. And so I, I tend to, again, part with a lot of the cancel culture scare stuff because Barry Weiss is not being canceled or, or, or in any danger by leaving the New York times because she can start a sub stack and make six figures by next month. Same right. with Andrew Sullivan who left the new, uh, what was it? Vanity fair to the New Yorker, one of those magazines, nobody reads to start a sub stack and he's making six figures the next day. Uh, mm. these people are not, these people are not losing their livelihood. You know, there are some journalists that you read about that, like, some tweet like the Iowa journalist, that stuff's awful, but that stuff is awful. And everybody knows about it because it's antithetical to what most Americans believe. So it'll all settle it itself. It's just that everybody's kind of scared because they don't know how they're going to make a living. I think about that all the time. Like, you know, I work in major media and I'm trying to figure out how to make money in new media. And what's the best way to do that. It's sort of a new industry and it's a new thing. And so people are a little, on edge about everything, but it's going to work itself out in, at the end. And so we don't have that single tier. Everybody reports, everybody reads the newspaper. We're now returning to what it was in the 18th century where you had the Rushville Republican, the Corden Democrat, and you had four newspapers in a small town because you want to, you had to read all four to get all the angles. And so, you know, that, I think it's a good thing because it it opens up a broad representation of thought, which will expand political choices because as culture expands, as people expand, as society becomes more diverse, the government will too. Like we just saw that with gay rights. As everybody goes, this isn't right. The God, the, the spineless politicians in the span of an Obama administration go, I'm for so I'm for civil unions. And then by the end, they're like pride flag for everyone because People changed. You know, when the right. NCAA says we're shutting down for the good of society, then the politicians check the wind and go, mm, maybe we ought to do that too and start shutting things down. And so it really is what we choose and we are in charge and politicians are spineless weasels and not. And so 
you know, and it's the same with those big institutions. As people change their habits, yeah, they're going to act weird, but it doesn't really matter because you and I and what we're doing here. I mean, I've seen We Are Libertarians go from talking to 72 people in its first year to a reach of hundreds of thousands of people a month. You know, we had a million downloads last year. And I'm considered a small audience. You know, I'm on a podcast called The Pat Down, and it's a comedy podcast, but at its heart, a ra- uh, about racial reconciliation. And that's got 100,000 downloads a week. I guarantee we're doing more to destroy racism than Robin D'Angelo <laughs> because we're putting it in a fun, interesting way that everybody wants to read. P- people aren't reading the Charles Blow think pieces in the New York Times. They're listening to two comedians and a podcaster talk about racial issues from multiple points of view. And so, you know, the the old guard is over, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, that's the whole point of why I did this. Is I mean, this is a pa- it's a passion project. I'm not making any money off of this. And I probably won't for a while, or if I ever do. But the point is that I love having conversations that are relatable and that are personal. And I enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> On Facebook, I'm very vociferous. I'll, I'll make a two-paragraph post about something that I see because I have a hot take and I want to just express it or I use it very therapeutic for me. And then I engage with some of my social media friends and whatnot, and it's fine. But once in a while, I have someone who jumps down my throat and it, it reads too much in the lines of saying, oh, well, then you must be this or you must be that. And that always pissed me off so much. So I thought this would be a great way for me, just my, my personal life, to create a medium in which I can have a conversation. It's like, you want to come at me on a public forum? Then why don't you come talk to me about it in a more, more nuanced and relatable way? And I, I I love it so far. I think this is great. And I, I mean, I I could only dream of getting to where you are at least. But, uh... so, social, <laughs> social media sucks. Like, I, yeah. I, I've never listened to Dave Smith's podcast until today. Uh, I just haven't. I, you know, I don't listen to a lot of libertarian podcasts. My perception of Dave Smith has not been terribly favorable because I watch Dave Smith on social media. And this happens to me too. People watch me on social media and they go, what an asshole or what a leftist or what a this or what a that. It's a Rorschach test. But mm. people who listen to my podcast have a much different view of me because I have the, the space. You know, there, there are still ru- rules to good broadcasting and creating a good media outlet. Those will never go away. There are rules to political science. It's a science for a reason. Like, you can't just, like, yard signs work, direct mailers work, and if you think that you're going to just Google add your way into office, you're a fool because there there are just, there are rules. Like, Larry Summers is a fool and Thomas Sowell's brilliant because Thomas Sowell understands gravity and to- and. Larry Summers thinks that he can defy gravity with MMT, modern monetary theory. Like, you know, there are rules to all this in terms of building an audience. And, you know, so you can't you can't do the four hour podcast, which is why Rogan's at an hour and a half, two hours forever. Um, But I've seen the space go from, you know, when I started watching in 2005 and joined in in 2007, I've seen podcasting go from. Having to post four years ago on my website how to do download a podcast to major money, huge advertisement stuff. Like, I think everybody's kind of going, all right, this is a real, like, how, like, the, the development in the last year or two of direct insertion, dynamic insertion of advertising, that is now making people money, which means there's going to be more investment. So there is some like skepticism on my part going, okay, I could get big money for an advertisement five years ago. 
But now it's so commoditized that I get pennies on the dollar because my audience, while it has grown, it's still a fraction of what the daily gets or what Rogan gets because they have so other social proof aspects that get more listeners in the door. Um, but at the end of the day, my podcasts are going to be better than the celebrity that they've just hired to do a podcast. Like, you know, they, it, it's like when they tried to make Dennis Miller, a talk radio show host, his show is not as good as Glenn Beck's because right. he's never done talk radio. Glenn Beck has been doing talk radio for 30 years. He's got more reps, you know? So, um, so I don't worry about it too much. You know, that it's good for everybody. My dad is listening to a podcast now for the first time. It's called the Dale Jr. Podcast, not We Are Libertarians. But at, <laughs> if a 60-year-old man is going to put that on his phone and figure out how to use it, maybe he'll stumble on his son's podcast. So it only benefits everybody. Yeah, I agree. And that the, that's the whole reason that like for, for the Kogan conversation, we've tried to make it unique in which, you know, me and my friends have always had good conversation around what we've enjoyed with with whiskey and cigars and and this kind of, you know, like the, the very complex notion of what you're getting on the nose and the flavors and whatnot, which we, I've attributed to a lot of life. I, it's kind of analogous to what I've what I've done with politics, but or what I want to explain in politics. And so we have this kind of the backdrop of this this unique, uh, you know, monocle and top hat type aesthetic that, you know, we can we can talk about whiskey and have things that, and we can also have podcasts that are not even close to politics and just have a conversation with friends, but also have podcasts like you and I are kind of dissecting some things politically. Um, I just talked to another podcast that's releasing this coming Monday. Um, uh, with someone who's voting for Biden. And the only reason he's voting for Biden is because he's not Donald Trump. And we had a very interesting conversation about everything political. Um, but the whole backdrop is, is what we're trying to shape around. I think it's a unique aesthetic for us. And uh, I mean, I'm just going at it. I mean, we, we're, we're putting in very small amounts of money just to keep this going. And me and Grant, who's my producer, who's doing a lot of great work, work for us, who you just met before we recorded, he he and I have just been having fun and we've like, we, we've, we've refleshed out our, our relationship and our friendship because of this. And we're doing great, great things. And I, I think, uh, I mean, when we get to episode, uh, a hundred, we'll, we'll maybe re, uh, reevaluate where we're at, but apparently 90% of podcasts don't get past episode 10. No, because so, people, people start it for the wrong reasons. They want, they think right. I'm going to get famous or I'm going to get rich and they don't. Yeah. And then by episode, it's a lot of work. You're starting a second small business and, you know, and I tell people that when I do podcast consulting, I'm like, you need to realize this is a small business you are starting. You you enjoy this, you will love this, and this is all you'll want to do. And then you'll start asking me about monetization, and then, you know, I'm going to tell you you have to put in this many hours, and you're going to go, uh, you know. And so, we are libertarians is responsible for the bulk of my friends groups. Uh, it's been the bulk of my dating career has come from. <laughs> ladies that have dipped into the we are libertarians world you know it's responsible for four marriages at this point and two divorces you know <laughs> it, it's we've had about a hundred people or so come in and out of we are libertarians over the last nine years and it's been a ton of fun it's the friendships it's the connection that have been special and you know, it. I put in tens of thousands of dollars of my own money and worked for free for seven years before I started making a dime. And by then, it was just to cover the costs. You know, now I'm I'm making a smidge per month of money on this stuff. Um, but it's not about that. It's about the the sense of belonging and community that I've developed for myself. It's about the intellectual exercise of trying to figure this stuff out and you know, 
when I'm when I'm on your show, am I saying something that's new and interesting that your audience hasn't heard or a, a point of view that they may not have considered as opposed to what they can hear on any other libertarian podcast? Um, and as well, like getting letters from listeners going, thank you, this is meaningful to my life and I get X out of it. Like that mm. stuff is, it doesn't matter if you're a patron, if you write me a letter like that, that keeps me going for two more months. You know, it's, 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 it's great. So I commend you for doing the podcast. It is a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate that. And I, I think you're absolutely right. That sense of belonging and, and creating a community is, is, I think it's just beautiful. I don't have to get paid ever for that. I think just keep doing this for, for as a passion project is what's going to keep me going. Um, as long as, uh, you know, as my listeners know, buying whiskey doesn't bankrupt me. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so far, I've been doing one one new bottle every episode. So I'm gonna quick I'm gonna quick tell everyone what I'm drinking, and then I'll uh, I'll thank you, and, and I'll let you give a little uh, outro if you want to plug. We are libertarians, but uh, just to everyone listening, I'm drinking something new, uh, Willet Bourbon. It's a pot still uh, whiskey, and what's interesting about this bourbon, it's not sweet at all. It has black tea with a little bit of a harsh. Uh, back end to it. It's got a unique bottle. It's on the camera. I'll put a link in the description. But I just wanted to get right into this with Chris. I didn't even I didn't even think about the whiskey. I just like you know I just want to talk to this guy because he's got a lot to say and I, I've loved his podcast for so, so long. Um, so Chris Spangle, thank you so much. Uh, we are libertarians. Uh, get, tell everyone where to go, how to follow you, and all that stuff. Well, first, thanks for having me on. It means a lot that you didn't have to be drunk to talk to me. Um, that's not <laughs> common in my life. And second, wearelibertarians.com, libertyexplained.com. Uh, check those websites out and follow us. Join us. Feel free to follow me on social media, too. Cool. I'll put all of We Are Libertarian stuff in our description and all of our stuff. Uh, Thank you so much for coming, man. It was, a, it was a pleasure to talk to you. It was great talking to you, too. All right, everyone. Cheers. Thanks for listening and being a part of the Kogan Conversation. Be sure to like and follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the places you can find podcasts. If you like what we're doing, we would greatly appreciate it if you subscribe to our Patreon. Just a few bucks a month can really help us make our content better and helps us buy new whiskey, too. Grab a glass of your favorite whiskey every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Cheers. Cheers.